Welcome to the What's Your Truth podcast, the show that not only showcases the best of independent artists, but also explores what inspires them, what drives them, and what they consider their fundamental purpose as an artist to be. Today on the show, we have an absolute beast of the music industry, songwriter Janet Cole Valdez. The acclaimed lyric queen of the music industry, Janet's songwriting roots run deep and wide as she has written in multiple genres as well as for a variety of circumstances in her storied career. What do I mean by that? Well, the early days found Janet as a staff songwriter for Motown and penning hit gold record winning songs that you're almost certain to know and love. Over the past several years, she's also written and played several songs in film and TV. Among her credits are no less than placements in the films Gladiator, The Last Dragon, and The Boost. She's also written music for television programs and commercials, including the Disney Plus show Big Shot, the theme song for the Emmy-nominated Made in Hollywood, The Young and the Restless, and the theme for Movie Phone. Pretty darn impressive and not nearly the end of the list. And then there's Janet, the theatrical writer. Her rock musical Emerald Man debuted off-Broadway a few years back to rave reviews and was chosen for the ASCAP Disney Musical Theater Workshop. Her musical Colin Porter was optioned by Jersey Boys co-producer John Osher, and she's also part of the songwriting team responsible for the critically acclaimed and freaking hilarious one-woman show, Waiting for Johnny Depp. I've seen the show, and I can tell you with no reservation that it and Janet are deserving of every accolade bestowed upon them, and then some. Now, aside from all this, and mind you, this is only a few of the high points of Janet's career, I've had the absolute pleasure and good fortune to get to know Janet and her incredible husband, with whom she co-owns the production company Zappalap Music, personally as well as artistically over the past few years. I can honestly say that she is one of the most creative, caring, and genuinely awesome people in my life today, and it's an absolute blessing to be able to call her my friend. Always there with a smile and truckload of interest and enthusiasm for the things I have going on, you truly are one of the best friends anyone could ask for, and I'm proud to have you on my show and in my life. Ladies and gentlemen, Janet Cole Valdez. Wow. <laughs> Johnny, hello. I'm so humbled hello. by that introduction. Well, you earned every word of it and then some. So seriously, you're awesome. And um, I do. Well, I back, one of my back best you. Thank you. Yeah. Very cool. Well, shall we roll into it? Sure. Good. Here we go. The first question I have for you is, how did you decide that you wanted to become a songwriter? And the answer I have for you is I didn't. Okay. Well, tell me about that. <laughs> it found me. I wrote my first song at three years old. And um, I wrote my first children's book at five years old. Um, I have just always had being a storyteller in my DNA, in my veins, in my blood. I mean, I, people tell me these things who knew me in childhood that I do not even remember. Like a few years back, my cousin said, you know, I remember the greatest thing about going to your house for Thanksgiving. And I said, what? And she said, you would write these plays and you would give us all a role and you would direct all the cousins. And I thought, really? Wow. Okay. I mean, it's so natural to me that it didn't stand out to me, but then somebody else I ran into from childhood who we used to have a carpool to religious school on the weekends. And she said years later, wow, the thing I loved about those carpools was you would the whole drive, you would tell these serial stories and you would leave it on a cliffhanger and I couldn't wait till the next week. And I thought, really? <laughs> But I guess it's just always been in me that I just love entertaining people and I love taking people on a journey. 
That's so awesome. Wow. From literally almost from day one, that's definitely seems like you were literally born to do it. So what was the first experience you remember having with songwriting? Uh, well, somebody bought me a guitar at nine years old. It must've been my parents, I guess. And that was when I really started realizing I took a couple lessons and then I thought, oh, I could actually write songs. And this was, um, obviously this is giving my age away, but you've already mentioned Motown. So I'm not going to, I'm just going to embrace the fact that I've been around a long time, but it was kind of in the middle of the protest movement in the 70s and so I remember um, I took that guitar and I wrote this whole song something like hey Mr. Grown-Up Man I'm doing what I can but you're the one with the world in your hands and it was like this whole song to asking the grown-ups to fix the world so I can grow up too and um, didn't record it but I guarantee you it was a banger. <laughs> <laughs> no I get on well I mean he was listening to you kind of reminisce about the lyrics I'm like I can that's pretty damn good, Janet. <laughs> Thank you. But anyway, but what happened was I had amazing parents, but my father in his own time had tried to be a writer and failed. So he really felt that he was protecting me by teaching me this wisdom that is pretty much impossible to succeed in life as a musician or as a writer. And that was just instilled in me so deeply and yet, I, like I said, I couldn't help it. It's like all I ever did was imagine stories, tell stories, write songs. It's like you sort of couldn't stop me, but I always had to major in something sensible and this and that, um, which was a, a big thread in that musical Waiting for Johnny Depp, if you say you went to see it. But um, it, it's just so funny. I worked during the day but every chance I had I would be writing and going in the studio and then I finally I had this neighbor he's a tv and film composer named Mark Mercury I've actually lost track of him over the years but if anyone knows him please tell him to get back in touch and I was playing my songs for him and he said you know what you could actually do this and I looked at him like he was out of his mine. It so went against everything I was ever taught, that it's impossible, there's no way, you'll starve, you'll never make a living, absolutely no way. He said, you know, you could actually do this, like, for a career. And I thought about it for a while, and I thought, wow, really? I could, like, do this thing that I love so much? So that was really, that was in my 20s. I mean, it was, I was, like, 25 years old before I even got the first inkling of a notion that it was something that I could do. And it's, it's very, very funny because a few years later when I had my first song that became, it wasn't so much of a hit in the U.S., but it was a big hit in England called Shalom, I mean called Disappearing Act for the, the 80s band Shalimar. Uh, uh -huh. It just was the weirdest coincidence because my parents, who hardly ever traveled, just happened to take a trip to England when my song was playing in every pub they went to. Oh, and wow. it was like such a full circle moment because my father all my life had been saying, you can't do this. There's no way you can't. And every, and they told this story, they got so much joy out of being able to walk into a pub. My song would come on and they would say, Hey, that's my daughter. And from that moment on, 
my fa- my father completely turned around. Oh, and then he said, my, my daughter is a songwriter. Like, like it was a good thing. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, and it's Thanks. cool. Then you handled the stuck, you know, this stuck idea. <laughs> yeah. And it's understandable, man. I mean, a lot of people get stuck with that. So that's really cool, actually. Um, so who are the biggest influences on your work and why? Influences on my work. Wow. Okay. Okay. Uh, I have a few. When I was growing up, Joni Mitchell was my idol. I mean, I worshipped at the altar of Joni Mitchell. I, and they're not alive to find this out, but I destroyed my parents' car driving around Laurel Canyon searching for Joni Mitchell when I was probably 18 or 19 years old. And I ended up driving into a ditch. I mean, it's ridiculous, but she was my absolute, absolute idol. And uh, then my musical, uh, I don't know what you, how you say it, palette kind of expanded out to R&B music, started with my college roommate who took me to see this completely unknown band up in Santa Cruz called The Whispers, who became very, very huge on wow. Soul Records. And these they were on stage and that completely rocked my world. And all of a sudden I was exposed to a whole other style of music. And so um, another, another person that has always been an inspiration to me is Stevie Wonder. If you asked me who was your all time favorite artist, that's probably the answer I would say Stevie Wonder. Mm -hmm. Um, But in the musical theater world, I would have to say, Stephen Sondheim mm-hmm. and going way back in the past, Cole Porter. These were like some of the great, great songwriters of all time, in my opinion. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think Cole did, he did Anything Goes, correct? Mm-hmm. I was going to say, it's one of my favorite musicals of all time. And the songwriting on this is so top notch, even. And then within theater, as I understand, like there's no such thing as a crappy theater writer. Like, it's either you know what you're doing or you don't. And if you don't, you really don't go anywhere with it. And he, even among the giants, was like a giant, it seemed like, Cole Porter. He was. Yeah. They were. So was Stephen Sondheim. But yeah. Yeah. For sure. Definitely. Right on. And what's the weirdest thing that's ever inspired you? The weirdest thing that inspired me? Well, okay. I mean, I don't know if this is weird or not, but I've always had this idea that if something really bad happens to me, that that's like a great reason to create a great piece of art inspired by that. I've always had sort of a touch of the twilight zone in me. And, um, you know, speaking of Waiting for Johnny Depp, this was a show that I co-wrote with the incredible Didi O'Malley and the incredible Betty Ross. Mm-hmm. And, um, it was such a joy, but it started off with just Didi and I, and basically we went through what I call the deal from hell. We were offered this humongous, humongous, life-changing deal to start a record company. We were a team of five people. Oh, five. <laughs> Did I do that? you're clearly very passionate about this you know that's that's my blessing and my curse in life we 
were offered this deal by the probably one of the biggest, biggest, biggest corporations on earth who wanted to expand into the music business. And we had a lawyer and they sent us a contract that was the size. You're much too young to remember phone books. No, but I remember phone books. For those I'm, of us I old the people, next. phone books were like two inches thick. Oh, yeah. Well, they sent us a contract. Oh my God! The size really? of four phone books, and this went back and forth between their lawyers and our lawyers for five years. And for us, we were struggling, struggling artists. You know, trying to figure out, okay, where is our next mortgage payment going to come from? Just hustling, and we get this. We get a call the deal's going to close this Christmas. And each one of us is going to get our first advance is going to be a million dollars each. And we're going to be in charge of our own record company. And so Didi and I were deliriously happy. It's going to close on Christmas. It's going to close on Christmas. And I'm making out a list of everything I'm going to do with my million dollars. Then it gets to Christmas. Oh, no, there's deal breaker. Our lawyer says we can't sign. They're going back to the table. So the months go on. Oh, it's going to close by Easter. <gasps> and then Easter comes around. We didn't get the deal. Then it was one thing. And then this dragged on for five years, the highest highs and the lowest lows that either of us had ever gone through. And then at the end of it, the company came back and said, you know what? We decided we don't really want to be in the music business. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh. And so <laughs> looked at each other and said, okay, how do we pick up these pieces? Right. And, you know, both of us had a background in musical theater and a love for musical theater. We both came at it from different angles, but it was a true, true love of both of us. And we had talked over the years about, you know, one day we should write a musical together. And I think it was Didi who said, you know what? Let's write a musical about this experience. Let's use that to inspire us. And of course we changed it around and we, we changed the names and we made it into an actress who just gets cast in this big role and, you know, goes through all these ups and downs and, and no matter what, like this, this incredible spirit. She just keeps on picking herself back up again. And so I think the question was, sorry, I give very long answers. The weirdest thing that ever inspired me. Yeah. This, this unbelievable, glorious and devastating five years inspired us to write this show that everybody loves to come and see because they laugh and they cry and all of these things. No, it's true. And it really, you guys really do capture a lot of different emotions. I know there's some stuff, obviously, you know, I know Didi and I know there's some stuff in there about like when her brother passed away and that all going down and like a lot of emotion got, and a lot of life experience got worked into that musical. And it was really, it was incredible. I mean, you guys really did a hell of a job of crafting that. You really did. Thank you. Yeah. It gets weirder than that. When we were in New York, uh, one of the productions was in 2019 in New York my brother passed away right when I was about to get on the plane to go to New York. So this whole sort of thing of, and that's a big thread of the show is the brother who dies. And the show is kind of a combination of both of our lives. And so it was just sort of weirdly, sadly ironic that um, 
you know, does life imitate art, vice versa? It's anyway. Totally. Wow. So how has your art influenced other people? Wow. Ooh. Well, I mean, that's kind of what I live for. Let's start with that. But, um, you know, I'm kind of one of these people. I've been around a while. I've had a lot of songs out. But, you know, I never quite had that huge monstrous hit that you know, everybody's kind of going for. And the funny thing about that is sometimes you can look at where you how far you still have to go or where you didn't go. And it can kind of skew your idea of what, um, of how you've actually touched people and influenced people. And like, for example, and I wish I remembered this more specifically because uh, my husband would remember if he was here, but somebody came over to our house one time to record something. And she found out that I wrote this Elda Bard's song called Starlight, Moonlight, Candlelight. And she said, oh, my mother has that on her answering machine. Back in the day, we oh, had an answering wow. machine instead of a voicemail. I do and, um, and I thought, all these years later, like somebody has my song on their answering machine. And then I met this person on the internet who reached out to me, never heard of him before. And he said Jared Cole Valdez I've been a fan of yours since the 80s and you did this song and this song and this song and this song you know you just never wow. know and then of course my the best way I like to influence people is in the theater because you know that's one reason I got into theater a song you have three minutes to tell a story but when you have an audience quote-unquote captive for 90 minutes you can take them on a journey. And, you know, I've had productions, I think, on three different musicals, and one of them had four productions. And the thing that I love and it, the thing that I live for and strive for is when people come up afterwards and say, I laughed, I cried, and I was inspired, and I feel transformed. And that, when I do that, I can, I just say, wow, you know, I've done my job. And sure, Maybe I haven't done it on as large of a scale as I'm still hoping to, but those little moments, it's just like, yeah, that's, that's why I get up in the morning. Now I remember. That's so awesome. And I love that you referred to it as taking them on a journey and, and you're, it's totally true. I never thought of that, but yeah, there's the big difference between 30 or between three minutes and 90 minutes. And, uh, you know, you're always trying to take them on a journey, but the theater does really give you that really unique opportunity to truly take somebody on a journey through an existence you know, through somebody else's eyes. It's actually a pretty incredible way to look at it. I love that. So do you have any pre-writing session rituals? Uh, it depends because ever since the pandemic, uh, I, I used to write with people in the same room, but ever since the pandemic, everything went over to video calls and I've been writing on Zoom calls with people from all over the world. So I guess the pre-writing ritual is to make sure that my Zoom setup is working. <laughs> ah, yeah, the, the, sometimes the tech gods are in your favor, sometimes they're not. It's always good to <laughs> find out ahead of time, right? Exactly. 
totally. And then what risks, if any, have you, this is a little bit of a play, by the way, on a song from uh, Waiting for Johnny Depp, which I didn't intend, but it works out that way. What risks, <laughs> if any, have you personally taken for the sake of your craft? <laughs> I jumped out of a plane. What was it? Crawled like G.I.G. No, okay. I have taken every risk you could imagine. A lot of people don't know this about me. People who actually know me in real life, sometimes they think I'm kind of shy. I mean, I know it's a little hard. You know me better than that, but maybe a little shy, a little quiet. But the truth is, I have always had this philosophy of saying yes to any opportunity and saying yes to any chance, even if it got me in personal danger. So, um, I don't know about a risk, like specifically for my career, but I've done some crazy things. I have definitely done some crazy things chasing after an opportunity. Um, yeah, I mean, I have some ridiculous stories. Like one thing, for example, when I was, this isn't that risky or crazy, but when I was at Motown, I've always had a really bad memory for faces. Like I know people and I know sort of their essence, but I, I'm the worst person in the world for recognizing celebrities. Like walk into a room with celebrities and someone says, do you see who that is over there? No, who's that? I mean, for some reason, I'm just not good with faces. Well, at the time, Smokey Robinson was in the studio and he was working on his album. And we were told that he was looking for a few more songs for his album. So I got together with a couple of amazing writers and um, we wrote this song called One Kiss is Worth a Thousand Words. And um, it sounded very, very smoky. I mean, I'm not a singer at all, but it was like, haven't you heard one kiss is worth a thousand words. It was like so smoky. And we had a vocalist that came on that sounded just like him and everyone that heard it said, that is amazing. That song is amazing. And for whatever reason, I could not get that song into his hands. And so I stalked him up to Las Vegas. <laughs> I tried, I went to Las Vegas and I tried to find somebody because he was in a, a show and I tried to find somebody I knew and I was walking around the hotel asking, I mean, kind of similar to driving around Laurel Canyon asking yeah, right? if he wow. knows where Joni Mitchell lives. I'm noticing a theme here, Janet. What? I said I'm noticing a theme here. <laughs> I'm not really a stalker. <laughs> Unless it's for a good cause. Um, but then one day, after all of this craziness, and I was just like, I spent a month of my life dreaming about nothing else, breathing nothing else, but getting my song in Smokey Robinson's hand. And then one day I was walking through the underground parking lot in the building that had Motown in it, but it also had Joe Bet, which was the publishing company where I was an assigned writer. And I'm just walking through that underground parking lot and this brown, very fancy Rolls Royce pulls up right beside me. Oh boy. And I look in the window and this really handsome man looks at me with this gorgeous big smile. And he says, hi. And I looked at him. I said, hi. And he drove off. And I walked into the building, got into the elevator. Like the Motown was on one floor and Joe Bet was on the other floor. Yeah. Went up to top of the my floor. 
the doors opened up and there on the wall was this large album with Smokey Robinson's face prominently on the album. And I went, uh, <laughs> that was Smokey Robinson. Oh, wow. <laughs> and we were, he was right there. He wasn't driving past me. He stopped. He said, Hey, how you doing? I said, great. How are you doing? Great. It would have been so easy. First of all, back in those days, we had cassettes. I'm really dating myself. It would have been so easy for me to say, Mr. Robinson, I'm a Joe Bett writer. How, would you be willing to listen to this? He is such a nice man. He would have said, sure. He was going to the same building. We would have gone up to Joe Bett, gotten off the elevator, walked in one of the offices. And who knows if it would have gone on that record or album or not. Back in those days, wow. we had records. But um, it is a kind of a crazy story of... Uh, you know, me doing anything for my craft. It didn't work out. <laughs> no, but you know, but good story. Give it a shot. I mean, if you never tried it, definitely wouldn't have worked out. Yeah, that's, that's kind of my philosophy in life. You know, I know people who gave up, who were really good musicians and artists, but they gave up for quote unquote practical reasons. And, you know, a couple of decades later, when you talk to them, they're like financially really comfortable and all set and everything is great around them. And this one person basically said, the biggest regret of my life is that I stopped doing music. I stopped doing my passion. And I never want to have that regret. Good for you. And that's another great lesson, I think, too, of like, however you can. I mean, obviously, if you got things you have to deal with in life fine but just not losing that if you're passionate about something just following it music whatever it is and that's a really good way of looking at it like you know 50 years from now for those of you out there listening um (laughs) do you want to have that regret or don't you because it is a choice um not an easy choice necessarily but if you're really if it's if it's for you you know follow the dream as they say yeah, I'm not saying that financial security is a bad thing. I'm not saying well, money is a bad thing. It feels so great to get paid well to do what you love. There's nothing greater than that. But it it doesn't take the place of your hopes and dreams. It really doesn't. And you know, I'm sure you've read so many stories of really, really successful, wealthy people, and they die tragically at their own hand, or this or it's like money. I had an amazing, amazing mother in my life. And from the time I was born, the one thing she taught me is that material things in the grand scheme of things, material things are worth nothing. Your happiness, your health, and your loved ones are worth everything. And, you know, she lived, she practiced what she preached. I was 16 years old, just got my license, took her car out and promptly... I got in a crash <laughs> and had to call her from the site of the accident. And she only had one question. It was her brand new car. She just bought the car like a week before. Brand new car. And the only question she said was, are you okay? Wow. Yeah. Are you hurt? No. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Thank God. And she never had another question. Wow. There was no second question. There was no, what happened to the car? Is the car okay? Did you total? But that was never, ever, ever a question. All she wanted to know was, are you okay? And that lesson really, really stayed with me. And so, yeah, money is great, but 
you know, it, it really doesn't take the place of what really, really matters in life. No, hundred percent. I've also found too, like, and this goes hand in glove with what you said earlier, like people that are really money driven, they rarely end up being happy. It's so low on the, in terms of motivators go and, you know, people that operate on purpose and duty and things like that, they're always happier, even if they're not financially in clover, but they also have a tendency of finding ways to make things go right because they're doing them for the right reasons too. And there's that. Um, so again, thank you for that. That was actually, that's a really huge lesson I think for people to get, you know, and this is coming from someone who's been doing it for a while guys. So she does know what she's talking about. Do you have to rub that in? <laughs> I don't mean that in a good way. I, yeah. Okay. I'm not, I'm not going to backpedal over that. I feel like if I try to fix that, I'll make it worse. <laughs> oh, don't try to fix it. You know what? It's so funny because it's interesting. This is also to some degrees, a very youth driven business. And for a long time, I've done things like tweaked my bio to take out all the things that I did in the past and make it look like I just, and then recently I really came to terms with that. Like, wait a minute. No, everything that I've done is what makes me stand out. Yeah. And it's so interesting, you know, in the now I'm in the working in the sync songwriting world and people of all ages are creating music for film and TV and ads. It's um, it's it's not more than just not something to be ashamed of. It's actually something I've decided to to really embrace. And so that's why now I put it right there in my bio, you know, Motown songwriter. Well, people can do the math, but yeah. Yeah, no, well, and the other thing, too, is it's funny because, I mean, like, I mean, with the technology today, yeah, and then the sync, the focus on sync versus, like, you know, people going out and performing, that still exists, of course, but, yeah, you, there's not, there's less of a face to it, but the other thing, too, is, like, there's a big movement for, like, the vintage and retro music, you know, even in the folk world, that's big, and even the way that people are dressing and looking, the hipster movement is very, a very almost old-fashioned kind of fashion it's a bit modernized but you know guys with beards and mustaches women wearing you know dresses that are more old-fashioned vintage looking versus being you know um scant and uh less than tasteful let's mm -hmm. say you know i mean there's obviously still elements of everything but you know yeah the age i think is becoming much more of a blurred line in the industry in in most parts of the industry not every part pop world is still pretty youth driven i think but right but you know it is an interesting point that we're talking about because it's it's an interesting point of discrimination that people don't really think about like even in the film and tv worlds like recently uh several years later my husband and i kind of got into this show that's been over for years but orange is the new black i don't know if you ever got into that but that show one thing i loved about it so much is they broke these barriers they had women of all sizes and shapes and ethnicities and ages and you know i just thought yeah you know it's okay to be individual to be different to not fit the mold and i love that uh it's being more embraced in entertainment in general yeah absolutely right on so shifting gears a little bit mm -hmm. well I one more question on the subject of risks actually is what's the craziest risk you've ever seen another artist take for their craft? Well, I don't know if I can say it, but for me, I've seen people, a lot of people who feel like they want to do their art career, 
but also make sure that they're very, very safe. And how that ends up is they don't really take their art or music seriously. And the people that I've seen really take risks are people that quit their jobs. I know people who have temporarily lived in their cars. I mean, I'm not endorsing this and I'm not recommending it, but it's just, it's a point of how badly do you want it? Personally, would I live in my car? No, I wouldn't. I don't think so. I think I'd go get a job, but a lot of the people that, that really took every possible risk made it huge. And it's because that they wanted that more than they wanted the comfort or the safety. And at least in theory, I've always endorsed that viewpoint. Yeah. And I mean, that's another interesting point too, of like the concept of people feeling like they need to be comfortable. It's like, well, especially in the beginning when you're building anything, it's not going to be comfortable. So it's really is a matter of what do you, how bad do you want it? What are you willing to endure? It's, that's definitely a thing. Um, mm-hmm. Think about if they want to get into this crazy business called the music industry. For sure. So what's one thing about you that would shock everyone to know? That would shock everyone to know. Okay, well, I've actually said a lot of those answers. Um, but, you know, I'm definitely always up for an adventure at a moment's notice. Um I think I've kind of gotten that across, but I have dropped everything and just gone off on some wild adventure because I love the adventure and I love life and I love having adventures in life. Like here's here's just one example that um, I had a business entertainment partner for many, many years. And this person, just to be quite honest, was a little bit of a psycho and she would put me through certain things on a regular basis where she would say that something didn't happen that really happened or she would fly into a rage and start accusing me of things I didn't do and she was so brilliant that I continued working with her and one day I was talking to my husband Tom and he said you know I'm really sorry you had to go through that experience and I looked at him I said no not only am I not sorry I had some of the best adventures with this person and looking back at it I thought wow I love the adventures of life so much that it overrides all of the craziness it's like you can look at it with two viewpoints you can look at it like wow you know I, I was you know, maybe we didn't have the healthiest relationship, or you can look at it like, oh, I, I would never have had this adventure. If I, what if I had decided to stay, at, play it safe? At one point I was in, an insurance adjuster. What if I had just done that? All of the, all the little moments of life and the little adventures. And, um, you know, even the way that I got into the actual business business of music, but that's a whole other story. But, um, you know, just, yeah, always willing to, to say yes. Right on. Okay, good. And you're right. You did definitely touch on some of that, but that, that's a real, I love that viewpoint too. And it also kind of keeps you cause over even the bad stuff that happens to you, you know, like you can get sucked into that stuff. You know I mean? I've definitely had things where I worked with some people that turned out to be not so good and they did and said things that, you know, kind of caves me in a lot, but 
that was a choice that I made to, to allow that to happen. I could have looked at it and said, you know, wow, I learned something and wow, that was an adventure and wow, I can do this, this and this with that knowledge. But so really great viewpoint to just yeah. keep that, that you can decide that it's just part of the adventure and, you know, giddy up. Thank you. Well, can I add one other story and you can edit some of these out if you like. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, also, you know, this whole, I lived through, obviously many people did this whole me too movement mm -hmm. and things were definitely, I think maybe worse back in the eighties and nineties and early two thousands compared to now, at least there's more awareness of it now and people are trying to change, but I had one experience that could have destroyed me and it wasn't until I looked back with the help of some spiritual guidance through my church and I found every point of that experience where I had a choice yeah. and every moment where I made one choice instead of the other choice. And by time I tore that whole situation apart and took my own responsibility for this horrible thing that happened to me, that's when I realized, oh, I can cause my own life. And I can, I can, I don't have to repeat that pattern because I'm not looking at it as a victim. I think it's so important when people are victimized by some situation in life, it doesn't really serve you to come to this conclusion that someone else has power over you. If you look at it the other way around, you can take your power back. And so when I looked at it, okay, what did I do to get myself? Why was I even in that situation? I even looked before that. How, why was I in such a mindset where I felt so desperate going into this situation where I was so desperate to work with this major producer or this or that. And I thought, Oh, well, I see that I made some bad decisions before that, that led, you know, you can, I don't know. I, I just really believe in people owning their own responsibility. I feel like it really will serve you well in the future. And it really helps you to learn from the experience. No, totally. And, and thank you for saying that. It's actually a fantastic lesson and message and, it's definitely not to absolve anyone who does messed up things to other people by any stretch, but you know, for yourself going forward, it's like, again, it comes, it does come down to the choice to look at it. And, and, you know, if you continuously say, well, I was a victim, I was a victim, I was a victim. Well, you're continuously perpetuating your status as a victim instead of saying, well, what can I do to rise above this? You know what I mean? And, exactly. and I am not saying by any stretch it's easy. And I've, heard some of the stories obviously the the me too movement was a thing and a lot of information came out and things that happened with certain uh people in the industry and it, disgusting but then sitting and saying well i'm a victim i'm a victim i'm still a victim because this eh, you don't have to be <laughs> well that's right it, it, it just what you say you're perpetuating that mindset yeah. and if you're walking into a situation where you've already decided i'm a victim you become almost a magnet for anybody looking for a victim. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome. So shifting gears a little bit, what's one thing or one tool that you absolutely cannot live without as a songwriter and why? Okay. 
my sense of humor. And this isn't just as a songwriter, this is also as a script writer and a uh, musical theater writer. You know, I also have this wonderful television show that I I wrote that we have an agent um, working on. But for any of these things, um, yeah, I love to look at any situation and find the humor in it. And sometimes that's maybe not a popular viewpoint to take. <laughs> but, you know, I just feel like that is partly why I've been able to lift myself up over and over and over again is because I find something funny about it. I always have this viewpoint, you know what? This really hurts right now, but I just know like five years from now, I'm going to look back and I'm going to laugh because this is so funny and so silly and so crazy. And um, I also feel, I know we're not trying to get into like politics and anything, right. but I feel like people take themselves too seriously. And I feel like people take the world too seriously. And, um, you know, I just want to create art and inspire people and influence people and help as I can. Yeah. And I mean, just building on that, it's, I totally agree with that. And it's, you know, I'm realizing that I see I'm learn. I learn when I do these interviews, I'm learning stuff right now. This is awesome. Um, you know, it's like if you operate in present time in a way of seriousness, cause you know, you're going to create more seriousness in the future. Cause that's where your mind's at. And it's like, who wants that? <laughs> Not to say that you can ignore the things going on around you, but you don't have to become those things. You know, you can acknowledge them and deal with them but stay loose in terms of whatever you're just, so you're creating a happier future and not just perpetuating what already sucks about the present time. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And some people are so stuck on their viewpoint about what they think sucks about the present time that they really don't want to look at ways to improve it or yeah. Or if somebody else disagrees with them, like my first thought is, if I have an opinion and somebody else has a completely different opinion, my first go-to isn't, okay, how can I make them, how can I humiliate them and make them wrong for their opinion? But it's more like, well, that's interesting. Why are they, why do they think that? And this is kind of my philosophy on politics too. If somebody has a different political viewpoint, my first inclination is, what did they go through that led them to think that such and such is a good idea? And I think if people would just communicate with each other, they would find out they have so much more in common yeah. than not. No, hundred percent. And I've found that to be the case too, is that when you actually get past whatever the initial veneer or whatever is that people put up or the wall they put up and just start talking. Yeah. I mean, we're all we're all a bunch of spirits living in a human condition. You know what I mean? Spirits, you know. Um, cool. So, what has been the most difficult song for you to create, and why? Okay, that's easy. Oh, good. Do you mind if I talk about something deeply personal to my family? Sure. All right. Well, as you know, my husband is a composer, mm -hmm. very gifted one. But for the first eight years of our marriage, we never wrote a song together. Uh, except for something I did for his rock and roll band. But that was mostly me and his partner working one-on-one. -on -one. But Tom and I, just the two of us, 
never wrote anything. And after eight years of marriage, we had a family tragedy. Um, his sister got murdered. And it completely changed everything in our family. And at the time, I moved up to San Francisco for a couple of months to help my mother-in-law. And since everything I had was down here, they gave me Lisa's car, the sister's car, to drive with, drive around it. And, and she grew up in San Francisco. Her whole life was all about San Francisco. And Tom had written this beautiful, beautiful instrumental piece of music. And he said, you know, let's write a song for Lisa for her memorial. So I, and he stayed down here working. He had to work at that time, but he came up every weekend. And I was just up there with my mother-in-law. And I was in Lisa's car, driving her car around her city and playing this beautiful music that Tom had written about her. And a lot of times when I write lyrics for someone else's music, I do it in the car for whatever reason. That's kind of something that's been very successful. So I'm driving around Lisa's city in Lisa's car, playing this song that my husband wrote about her and singing these lyrics as I'm writing them. And the tears are just pouring, pouring, pouring from my cheek. And I'm feeling Lisa, because this was just after she died. I'm feeling her so strong, her presence. And I, I can just picture her. The tears are like pouring, pouring, pouring from her eyes. And it turned out to be the most beautiful song. It's called Lisa's Song. And we, we did sing it at her memorial. Um, but yeah, that was a hard song to write. Yeah, I bet. I feel like I've heard that song, too. Isn't there a line that, like, Lisa never dies? Isn't that one of the lines in the song? Lisa will never die, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, I've heard that. And it is, oh, my God, what a gorgeous song. Man, what a great tribute. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't remember exactly how it went. Something like, each time the sun shines, I see her smiling. Each time the rain falls, I hear her cry. Each time... I don't know, the, the wind blows, I feel her hold me. That's how I know Lisa will never die. Or something like that. That might not be that. But. God, that's, I'm getting verklempt here. <laughs> Seriously, that's just hearing the lyrics again. I'm like, wow, I'm really getting the communication. That's very intense. It's so beautiful. Thank you. I think I said it a little wrong. I don't think it was wind blows, but you get the idea. I get the idea. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So here is a fun question for you. If you were going to write a book about your career up to this point, what would you title it? Uh, oh my gosh. Okay. Um, uh, square peg in a round hole and how to rise above everything and achieve greatness. I like that square peg in a round hole. I actually like that a lot. Doesn't that just paint the picture of what an artist does? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> In a very succinct way that everyone can even visualize. That's so true. I love that. Right on. All right. So I have two more questions for you. The first one is, what are your plans for world domination? My plans for world domination? Um, to reach people one song at a time. Very cool. 
And then my last question for you is, and to revisit the, the introduction to the show, you know, the show not only showcases the best of independent artists, also explores what inspires them, what drives them, and what they consider their fundamental purpose as an artist to be. So, Janet, what's your truth? We exist above all the noise and chaos and confusion of the world. We exist. We have so much in common with each other, despite all of the things that seem to be different and seem to separate us. The truth is the heart of humanity is beautiful and glorious and we can rise above anything. Yeah, that's all I have to say. That's awesome. That's incredible. And that's, again, what an artist viewpoint, like the future is yours to create, isn't it? Amen. So great. Awesome. Well, Janet, thank you so much for being on. Um, God, it's been incredible. I've known you for years and I learned stuff about you that I did not know. <laughs> so that's that was a treat. Uh, and then just I just love your viewpoints on what you do. I think it's so correct. And I think the people that see this episode are going to learn something. I really do. Well, thank you so much. It's really been an honor to sit here and talk with you. Awesome. And before we do end off, though, I did want to give you 60 seconds. If there's anything you wanted to plug all things, Janet Cole Valdez, fire away. Well, yes. Um, one of the things I do is work with artists. And I recently worked with this wonderful artist named Stella Nove in Las Vegas. It's this incredible pop duo. And we have a song that we just licensed to a company called NXT Technologies. And it's going to be up on their website. And um, we're also going to be releasing a single. Well, the artist is, but of course, I'm going to be supporting them. It's called Break. So look out for it. I'll have it on my social media um, account. So that's one thing that's coming up. Um, and yeah, just, you know, reach out and say hi. Awesome. Very cool, Janet. Well, again, thank you so much for being here. And uh, to everyone watching, this has been the What's Your Truth podcast. We'll see you on the next one. Later. Yeah, you follow your own group. your truth, oh what's your truth, now you got down on your